0: Hello, fellow fans of Ancient Greece. My name's Doug. Just like you, I was really happy when Ryan Stitt's The History of Ancient Greece podcast came out. I had listened to monolithic history programs like The History of Rome and The History of Byzantium, and I thought, hey, why doesn't somebody do something similar on Greece? And then, as if on cue, Ryan stepped up to the plate. He's already covered an enormous amount of material. He's one of my favorite podcasters out there. And I suspect that Cleisthenes and Herodotus and Thucydides and many others down there in Hades are grateful to Ryan for bringing their stories to our commutes and our walks and our jogs. I know I am. Ryan and I would like our listeners to know about each other's podcasts. My own show is called Literature and History. It's a podcast on literary history beginning in ancient Mesopotamia and moving forward from there. Its website is literatureandhistory.com and there's a lot of original music and comedy music, background music, and that kind of thing in literature and history. So, so far I've covered Hesiod and Homer, Sappho and Pindar, and I'm currently releasing a long series of shows on ancient Greek drama, including Aeschylus and Sophocles and Euripides and Aristophanes and that company. I've also covered literature of ancient Mesopotamia and ancient Egypt and the Old Testament, if you happen to be interested in those too. In addition to offering introductions and nice long summaries of works of literature, I also contextualize them in the historical periods that produced them, hence my show's name, Literature and History. So check this out. As it happens, Ryan and I are hitting classical Athens at almost exactly the same time. Ryan's podcast is mostly history with some literature, and mine is mostly literature with some history. And we both think that if you listen to them side by side, you'll end up with a pretty strong introduction to the history and culture of classical Athens. And classical Athens is one of the most fantastic edge of your seat places and times in world history. I mean, you've got the inception of the world's first democracy, and the Persian Wars and the Athenian Empire and the Peloponnesian War, and all the astounding literature that these events inspired. So my podcast, again, is called Literature and History. It's available in all the normal places you listen to podcasts. And Literature and History's website is once again... Literatureandhistory.com Well, folks, I hope you'll join me in helping Ryan out by writing a nice review of the History of Ancient Greece podcast on iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and giving the History of Ancient Greece a shout-out on social media if you haven't done so already. Oh, and one more thing. Ancient Greece is confusing and geographically dispersed yet it's something worth perusing in which you should be versed and now we are all learning it the war as well as the peace thank you mighty ryan snit for the history of ancient greece Thanks,
1: Ryan. Back to you. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, episode 26, The Tyranny of the Pisistratids. Pisistratus had gained a reputation in Athens' ongoing war against Megara as a great general by capturing the harbor of Nysiae and thus bringing the war to an end in 565 B.C. In addition to bolstering Athenian pride, this victory also ended the troublesome trade blockage that had contributed to local food shortages. Returning to Athens in 561 BC as a hero, Pisistratus was already nursing political ambitions, but he needed a political base first. So he looked to the Hyperocryoi, the faction of the poor hill dwellers on the eastern coast of Attica. He began his campaign by speaking out publicly, championing the lower classes and chastising the aristocracy for their abuses. Knowing that speeches alone wouldn't be enough, his big play came when he faked an attempt on his own life and then went before the assembly in the agora, bloodied and injured, pulled by two wounded mules, explaining that his political rivals hired thugs to do this, and announced that he needed bodyguards to protect him from his enemies since injured he was not able to do it himself. Speaking out forcefully against this request was his elder cousin Solon, who had emerged from retirement to prophesy the coming tyranny. The Athenians disregarded the old man's warning and allowed their favorite general to have 50 bodyguards by means of a motion by Ariston. Solon left the assembly, seeing that the poor were bent by gratifying Pisistratus, while the rich were shrinking away from any conflict with him and he even said that he was wiser than one party and braver than the other marching in the footsteps of Cylon a few days later Pisistratus used those armed bodyguards to seize the acropolis and just like that Athens was under the rule of a tyrant who had the poor masses on his side Pisistratus held power for 5 years from 561 to 556 BC it is said that each day within Athens The aging Solon stood outside his home in full armor, urging all that passed by to support him in expelling the tyrant and reclaiming the freedom that his laws once granted. Eventually, Solon relented and went back into retirement. He died in 558 BC, and Aristotle reports that his body was burned and his ashes were spread over Salamis. Even after Solon died, resistance continued to mount. Eventually, the two defeated factions, the Pediakoi and the Peraliaoi reached out to the exiled Alcmeonidae, seeking an alliance in order to overthrow Pisistratus. The Alcmeonidae readily accepted, being eager to return home and rehabilitate their battered reputation. Reading the writing on the wall, Pisistratus fled the city in 556 BC. With the return of the Alcmeonidae, Athens soon found that it had merely traded one threat for another. Having been fabulously wealthy prior to their exile, they had made even more lucrative arrangements in their absence, and thus they returned to Athens as an economic superpower. We have already discussed Megacles' victory over Hippocleides, a former archon of Athens, in the competition for the marriage of Agoriste, the daughter of Cleisthenes of Sicyon, and thus cementing a relationship between their two families. Another one of their recent benefactors had been the incredibly wealthy and powerful Lydian king Croesus. The priests at Delphi had developed a mutually beneficial relationship with the exiled Alcmeonidae, who had hired mercenaries to help free Delphi from the domination of the nearby city of Kira in the first sacred war. As a reward, the priests allowed them to withhold access to the oracle in exchange for payment. Through fortunate timing, they still held this position when Croesus came in the early 550s BC. Croesus had developed an interest in the prophetic abilities of the Greek oracle at Delphi, but he approached the oracle with a skeptical eye, wanting to test its power first, a concept that was sacrilegious to the pious Greeks. The Alcmionidae were more than happy to carry Croesus' test question to the oracle of what am I doing at this very moment? The Lydian king must have been satisfied with the reply since he would go on to consult the oracle on all of the supremely important matters. Also, the Algmionidae were handsomely rewarded for their intercession. According to Herodotus, Croesus famously invited Megacles's father, Alcmion, to visit his royal treasury at Sardis, and to take with him all of the gold that he could carry away. In any event, not being one to let pride or appearance trump wealth, Alcmion supposedly arrived wearing a baggy woman's tunic and loose boots, and then filled his outfit to the brim with gold dust. Just like with Solon, the chronology doesn't jive, so either Alcmion performed this action during the reign of Aliates, or it was actually Megacles. Regardless, bolstered by such wealth and international influence, it's hard to picture the returning Alcmionidae amicably sharing power in Athens for very long. Knowing this, Pisistratus waited patiently in exile for the other two factions to begin to quarrel. The Alcmeonidae constructed a magnificent new temple in the Acropolis, lavishly decorated with brightly painted snakes, bulls, lions, tritons, and triple-bodied men with blue beards, in order to win the people over. However, the comparatively modest temple of Athena Poles that had been erected by the aristocratic faction was still favored. So the Alcmeonidae cast it about for other ways to win over the people. Soon enough, the political alliance between Megacles and Lycurgus collapsed. So in their time of need, the Alcmeonidae reached out to the exiled Pisistratus. So in 556 BC, he divorced his Argive wife, and a second marriage was hastily arranged with Megacles' daughter, uniting the two families, and paving a way for the tyrant's return. According to Herodotus, Pisistratus recruited a tall, beautiful girl, named Phi, from a local village, and dressed her in the helmet and armor in the style of Athena. He put her in a fancy chariot, accompanied by musicians, dancers, and armed supporters, and had her ride out ahead of him, as he made his return through the Attic countryside, while his men yelled that Athena was bringing back Pisistratus to Athens. So, not wanting to anger their patron deity, the Athenians hailed to Pisistratus as he reached the Acropolis. And his men, and the Alcmionidae, drove out Lycurgus and his people, restoring Pisistratus's tyrant in 556 BC. As an aside, Herodotus here makes it clear how gullible the Athenians were. Although it was a spectacular triumph, it proved to be as short-lived as the first. Almost immediately, Pisistratus's new wife complained to Megacles that her husband was not performing his husbandry duties, meaning he wasn't having sex with her to produce children. Pisistratus did not want to mess up the succession of his sons from his first wife, so he had intercourse with his new wife, as Herodotus puts it, ou kata nomon," or not according to the accepted norm, in order to avoid conception. I'll let you ponder over what that means. In any event, she at first kept silent about this, but later informed her mother, when the mother told her husband Megacles, His anger at this insult to his daughter, and the impossibility of a future half Alcneonidae tyrant, persuaded him to turn on his new son-in-law. He thus buried his differences with Lycurgus, and renewed their political alliance. The two combined forces once again then drove Pisistratus out of the city, this time forcing him to flee out of Attica. This second failure taught Pisistratus a very valuable lesson the impossibility of seizing and holding on to the tyranny at Athens by conventional means, namely by relying on the strength of his faction alone. An alliance of the other factions inevitably would be thwarted by their superior combined might when they united against him at some other time in the future. So in his second exile, this time for ten years, Pisistratus ruminated over the true nature of power. Before his next return, he would eliminate any margin for error by accumulating a vast fortune, cultivating powerful allies, and having a personal army at his back. He traveled throughout the Greek world, gaining alliances that would enable his return to power. Despite having abandoned his first Argive wife, he somehow was able to repair his relationship with the rulers of Argos, and obtained a new wife, his third total, from a prominent local family. From there, he went on to Thebes, where he won additional wealthy backers, and then to the wild northern lands of Macedonia, where he gained an interest in the valuable gold and silver mines of Mount Pangaeus. He also spent time in Thessaly, and became friendly with the nobility of Eretria, and a rich man named Lagdamus of Naxos as well. His thoughts, though, remained on Athens. Whereas his first two attempts at power relied on trickery, his third would rest on the firmness of metal. Generous donations from his supporters coupled with Macedonian gold and silver, allowed him to fund a full mercenary army in order to retake Athens by force. In 546 BC, using Eretri as a base, Pisistratus landed on the beaches of Marathon with a thousand Argive mercenaries and Theban cavalry and recruited many of his own people to join him. Learning of his invasion, the Alcmionidae led an Athenian army to confront him near the village of Pellini in central Attica. The result was a crushing victory for Pisistratus. Despite their skill and determination, Athenian hoplites were no match for an army consisting of Theban cavalry and Argive infantry that was led by one of Greece's most experienced commanders, who shocked everyone by attacking midday in the hot Athenian sun. With victory in hand, he granted amnesty to anyone who laid down their weapons and joined his cause. Ominously, an Alcmeonidae noble was killed in the battle. The rest of the clan, unwilling to face his wrath, fled the city once again into exile. Then, Pisistratus ascended the ramp to the Acropolis and claimed the title of tyrant for the third and final time, this one lasting from 546 to the winter of 528-527 BC. In order to propagandize his rule, Pisistratus made the claim that his family can trace its lineage to the Naleid, one of the mythological connections to Athens. This probably wasn't believed by many Athenians, however. In any event, he maintained his hold on power this time by a mixture of force, diplomacy in his dealings with the aristocracy, and supportive policies for the poor. Pisistratus's first decree was that the people of Athens should not be alarmed or downcast, but should continue about their business, leaving the entire burden of state for him to shoulder. His first acts were geared towards cementing his rule. He recruited Scythians to act as bodyguards, paid for by tax revenues and by his income from his business interests in Thrace, and he tricked the Athenians into disarming themselves. Despite this, though, his rule was moderate, not harsh. And he allowed the laws of Solon to function, which had not really been put into full effect because of the factional strife. Herodotus said that Pisistratus didn't disturb the existing magistracies or change ancient laws and administered the state under the established constitution. Thus, it is reasonable to believe that for the most part, the archons, the Areopagus, the Boule of 400, and the Ecclesia carried out their functions with minimal direct interference by Pisistratus. This, in fact, legitimized his tyranny in the eyes of the people. This appearance of normality would have also appealed to the aristocrats, since their dignity and prestige would still be publicly recognized as they held the public offices of the archonship and continued to be members of the Areopagus. To many, his tyranny signaled the start of a new Athenian golden age. Aristotle later recorded that his administration was temperate, more like a constitutional government, rather than a tyranny. For this, Pisistratus's rule was exalted as a model example of tyranny. For more information on tyranny in the Greek world, check out episode 16. In any event, Pisistratus might not have altered the constitution like Solon had done, but he surely dominated it by placing his people in control of all political functions. In particular, he influenced the appointment of the archons so as to secure personal adherence, and one of his own family generally held the office. In order to do so, he essentially exiled most of his political rivals, forcing them to establish colonies abroad, often through the veil of doling out of choice positions. Because of this, all of the colonies associated with classical Athens were established during the time of Pisistratus. For instance, one prominent noble and potential rival, Miltiades of the Philads, One of the leaders of the Petiakoi was dispatched to take an army to the Hellespont in order to recover Sigeon and also establish a colony in the Thracian Chersonese, the modern Gallipoli Peninsula, in 540 BC, in order to secure its rich agricultural territory and strategic location for Athens. It seems that while Athens was absorbed in conflict at home, Sigeon slipped from her hands and the recapture of it was one of the initial priorities for Pisistratus. Well, Miltiades fulfilled this through the conquest of both the locals, specifically the Doloniki, and rival Greeks, eventually establishing his own tyranny, being subject only to Pisistratus's overarching authority. Herodotus relays a wonderful anecdote, which, as always, must be taken with a grain of salt. He says that the Thracian Doloniki, were at constant war with their neighbors, so they sent their kings to Delphi in order to consult the oracle. The Pythia told them that after they leave the sanctuary, the first man they meet on their journey home, who offered them hospitality, should be invited by them to come to their land as their leader, and he will settle their hostilities. But as they traveled through Phocis and Boeotia, they received no warm invitation from anyone, so they instead turned south towards Athens, It just so happened that they came across Miltiades sitting on his front porch. He noticed that they weren't wearing clothes that had been made locally, and they were carrying spears, so he offered them lodging and hospitality. They accepted, and after they had been fed and entertained, they revealed the oracle to him. As soon as he had heard the story, Miltiades consented to their request, because the rule of Pisistratus irritated him, and he wanted to get away from Athens. He took with him any Athenian who felt the same, and they sailed away to the land of the Doloniki. The kings abdicated their thrones and allowed him to make himself tyrant of the whole people. At least this is the story according to Herodotus. In any event, Miltiades fortified the peninsula, building a wall across it to defend against incursions by hostile natives. This settled the problem, and the Chersonese and Thrace would become important areas later for Athens, for their gold, silver, and timber. Aiding in this endeavor, he placed Sigeon on the opposite side of the Hellespont in the Troad, under control of one of his sons, Hegesstratus. Stratus. So by gaining control of both sides of the Hellespont for Athens, this opened up the Black Sea to Athenian merchants, and increased the grain imports from the Chersonese. As an aside, the name Miltiades derives from Miltos, a red ochre clay used as paint. It was a name often given to red-haired babies so it seems likely that Miltiades must have been red-haired. Back at Athens, some aristocrats acquiesced to Pisistratus' rule and thus were not exiled. He wanted to avoid alienating the aristocrats by allowing them to retain their status and prestige, but in order to ensure their good behavior and collaboration, Pisistratus took their children as hostages and then gave them into the safekeeping of Ligdamas, the tyrant of Naxos. Pisistratus may have confiscated the land of those he exiled and divided it amongst his hoplite soldiers. This is just speculation, though, because previously there was a great difference in landowning, but during the 5th century BC, there was an overwhelming number of medium-sized family farms. So that must have happened during the rule of Pisistratus, which would have only increased his popularity. According to Aristotle, he was known as a demoticotatos, were a man concerned about the people. Having secured power, he wanted to do everything that he could do to make his citizens happy and prosperous. In particular, having taken up the cause of the downtrodden previously, he had no intention of forsaking their interests now. It is surprising that Aristotle makes no mention of the two lasting achievements of Pisistratus: His program of public works, which also provided employment for the poorer citizens, and the encouragement of religious festivals, and the patronage of the arts, which emphasized the unity of Attica by reducing the importance of local cults. Thus, he focused attention on Athens as the social, religious, and cultural, as well as political, center of the Athenian state, and became a patron of public works and the arts. In doing so, he presided over the most substantial building program in archaic Athens, However, it is difficult to establish from the architectural remains at what date the major buildings were begun or finished, and thus whether they were initiated before or because of his tyranny. Matters are further complicated due to the multiple periods of tyranny and exile. Regardless, the scholarly majority is that Pisistratus and his sons should receive the credit for the 6th century BC building construction in the Agora and on the Acropolis especially as the funding of religious buildings was an effective political maneuver. A further benefit was that in constructing these many buildings, these projects provided jobs to the poor, which was by Citrus's initial power base after all. He cleared the agora of private dwellings, turning them into public buildings and promoted the agora, which literally means marketplace, as a place for the citizens to gather. For instance, he built the first small treasury-style buildings, called Oikamata. Towards the southwest corner of the agora, a large building was erected, known as Building F, and it dates to around 550-525 to 525 BC. It consisted of a central courtyard, which was surrounded by a number of rooms on three sides. This large and imposing structure gives the impression of being both a private residence and an official public building. Thus, It is believed to have been the palace of Pisistratus. Two shrines were also built on the west side of the Agora in honor of Zeus and Apollo. The royal Stoa, from where most of the state cults and the law courts were administered, was also on the west side. However, most of his building monuments were made out of wood, so they did not last the Persian Wars. Some of his stone buildings also didn't last. For instance, the older Parthenon, or the Temple of Athena on the Acropolis, was built during this time, but when the Persians came through, they laid waste to the Acropolis, and it was subsequently rebuilt during the Classical period. There will be more on all of this in a future episode. In any event, Pisistratus also constructed a temple of Artemis at Brauron, his home district, on the eastern coast of Attica, and a temple on the eastern side of Mount Hymettus, and he added a colonnade to the temple of Athena at Cape Sunion but the most ambitious project of all by Pisistratus was the erection of a temple to Olympian Zeus, or the Olympion. This was the largest temple to be attempted in Greece up to the time, and was so large that it was not able to be completed during his tyranny or that of his sons, and was only finished seven centuries later by the Roman emperor Hadrian. The ruins of this temple still stand today. Hand in hand with this was a festival to honor Olympian Zeus, called the Olympia. The date of the festival probably commemorated the anniversary of the temple's foundation, and is believed to have consisted of the cavalry displaying skilled feats of horsemanship. Pisistratus' support of the gods and the arts enhanced both his own reputation and that of Athens. According to Herodotus, Athens's position in the Aegean and prestige among the Ionian states was further strengthened by his religious purification of the island of Delos. He did this by digging up all of the tombs that were within sight of the Sanctuary of Apollo and removing the bones of the dead to another part of the island. The Temple of Apollo at Delos had long been a religious center of the Ionians on both sides of the Aegean, but now the Sanctuary became the venue of an Ionian festival of athletics, poetry, and music, in which only the Ionian Poles participated, and it fell under the special domain of the Athenians. But according to tradition, Pisistratus did a far more lasting thing for the two great Ionic epics. He commissioned the best scholars to figure out the true version of Homer's poems, since by this time, so many different versions of the epics had been made. His true version became standard all the way down to modern time. However, if this were true, it would be difficult to explain how the Athenians a generation before in their dispute with Mytilene over the possession of Sigeon, could appeal to Homer as to the part they played in the Trojan War, in the absence of a generally recognized text of the Iliad at that time. So it seems this may be a fabrication, and that Homer had already been immortalized before Pisistratus, or the aforementioned story regarding Sigeon didn't occur in that manner. In any event, at home, Pisistratus dictated religious policy by deliberately encouraging the growth of national cults and festivals at the expense of local cults, which were dominated by his political enemies, the Eupatridae. For example, the Eleusinian mysteries were brought under Athenian control. The Eleusinia, a festival to Demeter, unconnected with the Eleusinian mysteries, was established. Furthermore, he continued to encourage the worship of Athens by popularizing the greater Panathenaic festival which was held every four years, in the lesser Panathenaea, in each of the three intervening years. Regardless of the veracity of his previously mentioned interest in Homer, Pisistratus did make Homeric recitations a feature of the greater Panathenaic festival, and made a rule that the rhapsodes who compete it should follow strictly the order of the poems in choosing the pieces that they recited. Although the introduction and the development of the Dionysia as a national cult is not directly linked to Pisistratus by any primary source. The fact that it did grow in importance during his tyranny strongly suggests his political support for and active promotion of the cult of Dionysus as well. In fact, in the marshes on the south side of the hill of the Areopagus remains the ruins of the sanctuary of Dionysus that was first built sometime during the rule of Pisistratus. In connection with this sanctuary was the Dionysia which celebrated the transfer to Athens of the cult of Dionysus from Eleutherai a town on the border of Attica and Boeotia Pausanias states that the transfer coincided with the inhabitants of Eleutherai becoming Athenian citizens in order to escape from the Boeotians whom they loathed thus political motives on the part of Pisistratus can be discerned as well as religious reasons for the transference of the cult The festival also followed a set procedure. A couple of days beforehand, the old wooden image of Dionysus was moved from its sanctuary at the foot of the Acropolis to outside the city walls on the road to Boeotia. It was then brought back to its shrine in a procession just before the commencement of the main festival to commemorate its original journey. On the opening day of the festival, there was a magnificent procession escorting the bulls which were to be sacrificed at the altar of a Dionysus in his sanctuary. After the sacrifice, there was much feasting and drinking. Dionysus was the god of wine and ecstasy after all. In the evening, there took place the communal revelry, called Comos, which consisted of men dancing and singing in the streets to the accompaniment of flutes and harps. The following three to five days were given over to the performance of satyr plays, in which choruses of satyrs, who were the attendants of Dionysus, wore goatskins and honored Dionysus by conversing with their leader in a goat song, or tragodia, tragedy. Thus, the satyr plays held at the Dionysia were the forerunner of tragedy, comedy and the Dithram. Thespis is said to have been the first winner of tragedy competitions at the Dionysia in 534 BC. He was the founder of acting by stepping out from a chorus and performing a solo. There will be more on these festivals in a future episode. Anyway, in addition, the first high-powered Athenian black figure pottery was developed during this time. Black figured pottery reached its zenith around the middle of the century, and around 530 BC, potters began to experiment with the more versatile red figure style. There is more on this in episode 17. But Dionysiac scenes of drinking and unrestrained merrymaking were popular subjects of vase painting, during Pisistratus's tyranny. In any event, we can once again see Pisistratus's political shrewdness in his active support of such a national festival that offered pageantry and entertainment to all Athenians, thus enhancing his popularity. It is also worthy of note that this festival was not under the control of the Basileus Archon, who was the religious leader of the state, but of the eponymous Archon, whose election was controlled by Pisistratus and who was thus subject to his political direction. Pisistratus was unlikely to have foreseen the brilliant achievements of the classical Athenian drama, but his patronage of the arts had provided its stimulus. Strengthening the Athenian economy was another major focus of Pisistratus's program. Like Solon, he was concerned about both agriculture and commerce. He gave Athens its own system of weights and measures that would eclipse the Iubian standard for the rest of the Ionians. Under his reign, Athens minted coinage for the first time, made of silver and having images of Athenian owls on the reverse, and the head of Athena on the obverse. These Athenian owls, as they were called, would become the primary currency of the Aegean. As coined money became more popular and plentiful, It's entirely possible that Pisistratus converted Solon's measures of agricultural produce for class specification into an assessment of money. He also provided interest-free loans to those local farmers who needed to pay off their debts or buy more land and equipment. Aristotle writes that he lent money to the poor so that they might make a better living from farming for two reasons. First, so that they did not spend their time in the city but would be scattered throughout the countryside, and secondly, so that they would be reasonably well-off and involved in their own private affairs, and consequently would neither want nor have the time to attend public affairs. At the same time, he encouraged the cultivation of the land, especially the olive, and Athenian trade expanded greatly under his regime. During the first half of the 6th century BC, Athenian exports began to appear throughout the Aegean and Mediterranean, Probably at least in part to Solon, but under Pisistratus, fine Attic pottery traveled even further, ranging from Ionia, Cyprus, and Syria in the east, to as far west as Carthage and Spain. In any event, although the Athenian economy became very successful under his tyranny, Pisistratus did impose the first tax ever at Athens, beginning with an import tax and then a tax of 5% from all production from the land. This money went straight into Pisistratus's account, although it did give him what he needed to be the beneficiary that he was. Aristotle relays a story that on one occasion, during one of his many tours of Attica, during which he constantly reviewed and resolved disputes, Pisistratus ran into a farmer on the slopes of Mount Hymetus, who was struggling to cultivate a stony patch of land. When Pisistratus asked him what his land produced, the farmer said that all he grew on his farms were rocks. And that Pisistratus is welcome to his five percent, not knowing that he was actually speaking to Pisistratus. He was so taken aback by the farmer and his situation that Pisistratus immediately declared him exempt from taxes. The authenticity of this particular story may be doubted, but not Pisistratus's frequent tours of inspection around Attica, which reveals his concern for the welfare of the poor farmers. Solon's cancellation of debt slavery and his ending of Moroi status had only given temporary economic relief to the poor farmers, but he had done virtually nothing to provide the means to improve their financial position and thus avoid falling into debt again. And so, Pisistratus improved upon Solon's economic reforms by lending money to the poor farmers, which provided them with positive help in a number of ways. They could either invest in their land, thus increasing its agricultural output, or they could support themselves in the interim period while they changed over from cereal farming to the cultivation of olives and vines, as it takes several years after the first planting until olive branches or vines would grow long enough to produce crops. It also could tide over those on the cusp of entering the middle class until the rise of employment opportunities in industry allowed them to switch over from small-time farming, because this tax on agricultural produce encouraged those with capital to diversify and invest it in industry. Aristotle, who held a pro-aristocratic bias, stresses the political motives for Pisistratus's generous loans to the poor. He believed that attainment of economic security by the formerly impoverished farmers was the most important motive for the tyrant, since the resultant gratitude would secure their continued loyalty. The growth of commerce was accompanied by an ambitious foreign policy because peaceful foreign relations helped to create a favorable economic climate in which Athens could take full advantage of the export markets. Although Aegina was still an active and open rival of Athens, Megara had been humbled, and Pisistratus fostered and maintained political alliances with states such as Eretria, Corinth, Argos, Thebes, and with Ligdamas, a personal friend who he installed as tyrant of Naxos. These all had been acquired during his second exile, but during his tyranny, an alliance was probably also made with powerful Thessaly, which is strongly suggested by the name of his third son, Thessalos. At some point, an alliance also was made with the Spartans, although this may have been formed later during the rule of his sons. In any event, Pisistratus, in general preferred to secure peace by forging diplomatic links with foreign powers. But this did not prevent him from using force when he thought that it was in Athens or his own interests. For example, see his installation of Lygdamus as tyrant of Naxos and Miltiades' colonizing campaigns in the Thracian Chersonese. This dual policy of diplomacy and force proved to be very effective in foreign affairs. Furthermore, Pisistratus also instituted a system of circuit judges, originally. Those living outside of Athens had to travel to Athens in order to settle even minor disputes. But now, these 30 circuit judges traveled the countryside, bringing justice to the ordinary citizens. But they only handled disputes against tribes other than their own. He did this so that the administration of law would be removed from the local aristocrats, thus ensuring justice for the poor and emphasizing the superior position that the state was now holding over the aristocrats. Back in the city, Pisistratus regularly attended meetings of the assembly, appearing respectfully in the role that Augustus would later coin as princeps, never openly flouting power, but acting as if he was the first among equals. And so, a combination of peaceful relations with foreign powers and his political stability at home provided the basis for a widespread improvement in the standard of living for the Athenians during the second half of the 6th century BC. Pisistratus was an extremely ambitious and capable ruler. The biggest legacy that he left was Athenian civic identity in the form of buildings, ceremonies, coinage, and so forth. All of these things together show an Athens that was developing a sense of itself as a unique polis and as a unique people. In fact, he was such a good ruler that Aristotle, who despised tyranny, had to make an exception for Pisistratus Several centuries later, saying that he was essentially only half bad since he was such a competent ruler. He was beloved by the people, and a sign of his popularity is that he died in the winter of 528 527 BC, peacefully of old age. We are told with his death that there was no chaos or revolution as the tyranny was passed on to his two sons, the elder Hippias and the younger Hipparchus, according to Herodotus. Thucydides, though, reports that Hippias was the sole tyrant and did not rule jointly with Hipparchus. It is clear from the sources that there were conflicting traditions about his succession. In any event, at first, he, or they, ruled moderately, like their father, while Hippias concerned himself with matters of the state as an adept ruler, and Hipparchus preferred to continue the public works projects and patronage of the arts. Because of this, they enjoyed the popular support of the people. Their patronage of poetry attracted the most eminent poets of the day, Simoides of Chios and Anacreon of Teos, to come to their court. They made the Dionysia and the great Panathenaea more elaborate. They improved communications throughout Attica by setting up Hermae, or images of Hermes, the patron god of travelers, to act as milestones on the roads. They dedicated an altar to Apollo in the sanctuary of Pythian Apollo in the southeast of the city, Thucydides provides an inscription recording this dedication, which has been discovered and thus confirmed archaeologically. They also dedicated an altar of the twelve gods in the Agora, from which all distances from Athens were marked. The co-tyrants renovated the temple of Athena Poleus. All that survives of it to this day are stone rectangular foundations on the north side of the Acropolis, but there are surviving pedimental sculptures, such as the lions, Heracles and Triton, and Bluebeard, in the Acropolis Museum. In any event, the original outer colonnade was replaced by a newer and higher one, and the superstructure was also completely renewed. Furthermore, not only was the new, so-called East pediment now freestanding and executed in marble, unlike the other older pediment, which was sculpted in relief and executed in limestone, but also there was a dramatic new theme, that being the Gigantomachy, or the battle between the giants and the gods for supremacy as we discussed in episode 2. Athena was given the dominant position in the pediment, showing that Pisistratus' sons were continuing his policy of emphasizing Athena. The old Propylon, which is the first entrance built to the temple of Athena Polias, may also have been built around the same time. The co-tyrants also undertook major improvements of Athens' water supply. In the hot summers of eastern Greece, Few things are more important than a good water supply, and thus, they built the first aqueduct in Athens, opening a reliable water supply to sustain such a booming population. Two pipelines carrying water from the hills east of Athens were laid to run along the north and south slope of the Acropolis. Where the northern pipeline ended at the edge of the Agora, they commissioned a new public square with nine magnificent fountains, supplying fresh water for the Athenians. It was known as the Enneacrunos, or the Nine Spouts. The southern one ended at another fountain house, in a residential area southwest of the Areopagus. This concern for the public water supply, which the aristocrats with their private wells had neglected, was a policy typical of most tyrants. Thus, by replacing the private wells guarded by the nobles with public fountain houses, this not only meant construction jobs, but also a shift from private to public patronage. The popularity and frequency of use of these fountain houses are attested by their inclusion on numerous late 6th century BC vases. With expanded opportunities for jobs and housing in the city, and the ability to provide water to them, Athens' urban population continued to soar. At Eleusis, the co tyrants rebuilt the Telesterion, or the Hall of the Mysteries, on a much larger scale and strengthen the walls of the sanctuary. This sanctuary at Eleusis was one of the most important in Attica, and its growing popularity and the increased attendance of the ceremonies during the 6th century BC provided a practical reason for building the larger hall. However, this building work was also motivated by a desire to compete externally with other pan-Hellenic sanctuaries and internally with the local cults throughout Attica. The celebration of the Great Mysteries stressed the unity of Attica, symbolically demonstrated by the annual pilgrimages from Athens, which were attended by a large number of Athenians. There will be more on this in a future episode. At some point, the expelled Philades and Alcmionidae were welcomed back to Athens, either during the end of the tyranny of Pisistratus or during the rule of his sons, because Cleisthenes and Miltiades the Younger held archon ships in 525, 524, and 524-523 BC, respectfully. Cleisthenes was the maternal grandson of the tyrant Cleisthenes of Sicyon, as the younger son of Agoristi and Megacles. Miltiades the Younger was the nephew of Miltiades the Elder. His father, Chimon was a renowned Olympic chariot racer, who had gained the favor of Pisistratus for his dedication of his second Olympic victory to the tyrant, which paved the way for the recall of himself and his family. Since Miltiades the Elder had no male heirs, Cimon's eldest son and Miltiades the Younger's older brother, Stesagoras, succeeded him as tyrant in the Thracian Chersonese when he died in 524 BC. However, Stesagoras was proven ill-suited for the job and was unable to manage the conflicts and rebellions that sprung up under his unpopular rule. In any event, the fact that Cimon of the Philades and Cleisthenes of the Alcmionidae Two of the most distinguished aristocratic families in Athenian politics, and presumably other families who are politically aligned to them, returned to Athens under the Pisistratids is a testimony to the success of their policy of diplomacy and reconciliation. Meanwhile, the Spartan king Cleomenes wanted to do whatever he could to sow discord amongst his Greek rivals, which at that time were Thebes and Athens. His first opportunity came in 519 BC, when Plataea sent envoys to Sparta, pleading for protection against the Thebans, who were trying to force the Plataeans into joining the Theban-dominated Boeotian League. Cleomenes refused aid, but strategically told them to check with Athens. So, with the approval of the co-tyrants, Plataea gained a defensive alliance that freed them from Theban domination. Immediately, and as predicted, the Theban army marched on Plataea, where they were met by the Athenian army. The result was an overwhelming victory for Athens, who rolled back the Theban border to the river Asopus. In one swoop, Cleomenes was able to confirm Athenian military might and pit two of his rival Poles against one another, without the Spartans having to fight. For the next decade, Athens would play a leading part in Cleomenes' plans, For extending Spartan influence outside of the Peloponnese. But back in Athens, for over a decade, Hippias and Hipparchus had managed the city's affairs according to their father's example. Their growing sense of security can be seen in the fact that they allowed potential rivals to hold political office. One archon had been Miltiades the Younger, the nephew of the Miltiades who captured the Thracian shore of the Hellespont for Pisistratus as we have previously discussed. In 515 BC, when his brother Stesagoras was assassinated by a hot-tempered foe, the tyrants dispatched Miltiades the Younger to succeed him as vassal tyrant of the region. He knew that his brother had been an unpopular ruler, plagued by wars and revolts, so he decided that a firmer hand was necessary. Beginning his tyranny, by imprisoning all of the rebellious leaders and raising a force of 500 mercenaries to help keep order. He also formed an alliance with King Alorus of neighboring Thrace by marrying his daughter, Hegesa For the Athenians, the elevation of Miltiades the Younger was at least consistent with Pisistratus' policy, but a far bigger shocker was the archonship of Cleisthenes, an Alcmionidae noble and descendant of Megacles who had cost Peisistratus his second tyranny. However, Cleisthenes tried to make his archonship something more than titular, a transgression for which he and the Alcmeonidae were once again banished from Athens. Regardless, their tyranny remained both subliminal and popular until 514 BC, when a personal grudge set in motion what would become the fall of the tyranny. According to Thucydides, at some point, Hipparchus had taken a liking to a young man named Harmodius, who was reputed to be the most handsome guy in all of Athens, but he already had a male lover named Aristogaiton, and so Harmodius spurned the wooing of Hipparchus. The hot-tempered co-tyrant then retaliated in a particularly nasty way. The greater Panathenae was coming up, and all of Attica came out to celebrate the event. Hipparchus informed the younger sister of Harmodius that she was selected to carry the baskets that held the knives for the sacrifice, called Canaphoros, a great honor reserved for virgin Athenians only. But on the day of the games, he addressed the crowd in the Agora, and publicly declared that she can't carry a basket after all, the implication being that she was not a virgin. The young girl was horrified and ran off crying. Aristagaiton and Harmodius were infuriated, and in their anger, they formulated a plan to assassinate the co-tyrants. They only gathered a few supporters, so as not to raise suspicion. They also expected that when the first blow was struck, the people would back them up in the name of freedom. But on the day of the procession, when they saw a fellow conspirator chatting up Hippias near the Leocorion, a monument at the northwest entrance to the Agora, they leapt hastily to the conclusion that their plan had been betrayed and so they improvised and rushed at Hipparchus with daggers drawn. The co-tyrant's bodyguards managed to kill Harmodius, but not before Aristogiton stabbed him to death. Aristogiton was then arrested on the spot, and when he had heard what had happened, Hippias was beside himself with grief. He had the surviving assassin tortured until he revealed his plans. But when Aristogiton refused to do so, even spitting on Hippias in refusal, he took out his own dagger and stabbed him to death. At the time this event happened, little to no sympathy was manifested for the tyrannicides. But that would change over time after Athens transformed into a democracy, as later statues were erected on the Acropolis to Harmodius and Aristogiton. A Roman marble copy of the bronze original resides now in the Naples Archaeological Museum. The tyrannicides, also, were hailed in scolia or drinking songs. Athenaeus writes, "In a branch of myrtle, I shall carry my sword, just as Harmodius and Aristogiton, when they slew the tyrant and made Athens free." Here, Athenaeus uses the word isonomia, which is translated as free. Their fame probably reflects later propaganda by opposing political factions whose objective seems to be the devaluation of the achievements of the Alcmionidae. more on that next episode, by highlighting the fame of Harmodius and Aristogitan. This propaganda gained so much acceptance, to the extent that there were annual sacrifices to the Tyrannicides, as they were called, as heroes by the polemarch on behalf of the state, and their descendants were maintained at public expense. It was Thucydides' desire to correct this mistaken tradition as he believed, that led him to stress adamantly that Hippias was the eldest son, and thus was Pisistratus's successor's tyrant, to which Herodotus agrees. Aristotle, though, put forward a compromise by suggesting a joint rule by both sons, though he admitted that Hippias was the elder and was effectively in charge of ruling Athens. It is likely that the Athenian acceptance of these two differing accounts were due to their desire to overlook one very unpalatable fact— that the lion's share of the praise for the overthrow of the tyranny Athens belonged to Sparta. In any event, following the assassination of Hipparchus, rumors began to spread around Athens that the Tyrannicides had not been acting out of petty malice, but out of a symbolic blow against tyranny and oppression. Predictably, Hippias became very paranoid after this and secluded himself behind a wall of Scythian bodyguards. He even fortified the hill of Munichia at Piraeus in order to have a post on the shore from which he could flee overseas at a moment's notice, if need be. He also began to turn his eyes towards Persia, where a new power had begun to cast its shadow over the Hellenic world, more on that in future episodes, by marrying his daughter Archidike to a son of the tyrant of Lampsacus, who was known to have influence at the Persian court. In any event, from this point forward, the entire nature of Hippias's regime became very harsh. He searched Athenian homes and arrested any who were found with concealed weapons. He executed all those who he suspected were plotting against him, whether it was truthful or not, making him further unpopular. Nobody in Athens had the strength to stop the cruel tyrant, until finally in 513 BC, some prominent Athenians sent a plea for aid from the exiled Alcnionidae. Eager to take advantage of Hippias' downward spiral, Cleisthenes stepped back onto the stage. He dutifully raised a mercenary army and marched on Athens. Hippias, though, had more formidable mercenaries of his own, and he defeated the forces of the Alcmionidae near Lipsidrian in North Attica. Thus, later that same year, Cleisthenes was forced to turn to Plan B, He knew that the surest way to eject the tyrant from Athens was with Spartan aid. Fortunately for him, the expelled Alcmeonidae had one major investment that was due to pay off at any time now. They had garnered a position of special favor with the Delphic Oracle because they had accepted a contract from the Amphictyones to rebuild a new temple to Apollo after the older one was damaged by an earthquake back in 547 BC. They even provided first-class parion marble for its reconstruction, instead of ordinary limestone. According to Herodotus, in return, from then on, every time the Spartans, who enjoyed a reputation as the enemy of tyranny, inquired about a matter with the Delphic Oracle, whether on private or public missions, she always responded with, Free the Athenians first. Thus, After what was presumably numerous attempts at hearing the same response, the Spartans finally agreed to assist the Athenians, despite their close ties to the Pisistradids, for they considered the concerns of the gods to be a higher priority than those of men. So in 511 BC, Cleomenes sent a small force across the Isthmus of Corinth into Attica, under the command of Ancymolius. Since the Spartan expedition went by land, We can safely assume that by this point, Corinth and Megara were allies of Sparta, if not earlier, as we discussed in episode 22, and thus they provided them with safe and easy access to Attica. Unfortunately, Cleomenes had underestimated the strength of Hippias' mercenary forces as well, particularly his Thessalian cavalry, and the Spartans had made it to Phaleron before being engaged and driven back into the Peloponnesus. In this attack, Many Spartans were slain, including Ancimolius. For a people whose reputation was everything, this would not do. So the next year in 510 BC, Cleomenes personally led a much larger expedition. This time, they did justice to their legend and easily dispatched the tyrant's mercenaries. The routed Thessalians departed at once back to Thessaly. Then, marching into Athens... They besieged Hippias and his supporters atop the Acropolis. A botched attempt to smuggle the tyrant's children to safety, probably to Lampsacus, inadvertently delivered them into Spartan hands, which allowed Cleomenes to negotiate for his surrender. He capitulated and thus was given five days to leave Attica on the condition that they would be given back. A pillar was set up on the Acropolis. Recording the sentence which condemned the Pisistratus to a perpetual disfranchisement, called Atimia. Hippias and his family defected first to Sigeon, where the Macedonian king Amyntas offered him the district of Anthemis, north of the Halkidiki Peninsula. Then they went to Lampsacus, before he finally ended up at the court of the Persian king Darius. Thus, this ends the Pisistratus' tyranny at Athens but it would not be the last time that Hippias would set foot on Attic soil. The rest of that story will be concluded in a future episode. Almost immediately following the expulsion of Hippias, another important event occurred that would have ramifications later. The town of Plataea, on the Boeotian slope of Mount Kytheron, was determined to retain her independence and hold aloof from the Boeotian League, which was under the supremacy of Thebes. The Plataeans first tried to enlist the aid of Sparta, but they were unwilling to interfere, so far north. So they then sought and received the help of Athens. This would be the beginning of a long friendship between Athens and Plataea, based on mutual interest. Plataea depended on the support of Athens to maintain her independence on Boeotia, while it suited Athens to have a small friendly power on the other side of Mount Cithaeron as a sort of watchtower against Thebes. Thus, the Athenians sent on an army for the protection of Plataea. Their intent wasn't to engage in hostilities with Thebes, but to assert legal authority for Plataea's independence. Thus, the two sides brought their case before an independent arbiter, which was Corinth in this instance. Corinth backed the Athenians and ruled that the Boeotian cities, which did not wish to join the league, cannot be coerced into doing so. But the Thebans could not accept this ruling. So as the Athenian army was departing, they were treacherously attacked by the Theban army. However, they underestimated the will of the Athenians, who were victorious, and as a result, the river Sapis became the fixed southern boundary of the territory of Thebes. The Athenians also acquired a post on Boeotia itself, that being the town of Hissiae on the northern slope of Mount Citheron. Because of this, Thebes and Athens wouldn't exactly remain on friendly terms and Thebes was chomping at the bit to enact revenge. In any event, regardless of how the last few years of Hippias' reign came to a turbulent conclusion, the totality of the Pisistratus' tyranny had many positive elements. A much-desired political stability was achieved by conciliating the upper class through diplomacy and by winning the goodwill of the lower class through economic reform. There was a great expansion of commerce through the Hellespont and into the Black Sea region, in the east, and with Sicily and southern Italy, in the west. By the end of the 6th century BC, Athenian pottery surpassed their Corinthian counterpart in the western markets. Also, tyranny broke up the monopoly that the aristocracy had on Athens. It did not revert back after tyranny was deposed. Solon's reforms, plus those of the tyrants, made permanent changes in Athenian society. The people gained experience over those years on the business of conducting self-government. Thus, tyranny played an important role in the transition from an aristocracy to the classical democracy. But the Athenians had to pay something for its deliverance from tyranny. It was obliged to enter into the Peloponnesian League, of which Sparta was the head, and thus Sparta acquired a certain right of interference in the affairs of Athens. For a people so deeply independent as the Athenians, this certainly would not do. And this new obligation was destined to lead soon to another struggle. So, join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 27 The Democracy of Cleisthenes. If you haven't done so yet, please head on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. It would help the podcast grow immensely. Also, while you're there, Subscribe to the show so it comes on your phone or listening device every week. If you don't have iTunes, you can catch the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also, make sure you are checking out the website at thehistoryofancientgreece.com, where I've posted a lot of neat supplementary photos, maps, and charts for each episode. Finally, now that the show has gained some traction, I decided to create a Patreon page in case anyone felt inclined to contribute to the creation of the History of Ancient Greece podcast there is a link on the right-hand side of the website. But don't worry, the podcast will still remain free regardless. But it is an expensive endeavor to create a podcast after all, with the cost of website hosting and the purchasing of equipment and the time and effort required to research, write, record, and edit a show. So if you're feeling generous, consider supporting the show by making a monthly donation. If you'd rather just do a one-time donation, there is also a PayPal link on the right-hand side of the website. Just click on the donate button. Patreon allows you to pledge money, either for every episode or per month. It can be as little as a dollar a month if you please. That amounts to a can of soda or a cup of tea or coffee a month. And while it may seem insignificant, if many people pledge that amount, it can really add up quickly. Either way, I would be eternally grateful. Speaking of which, I would like to give a huge thanks to listener Al Ozenoff, Andrea Peterson, and Patrick G. for their pledges. I cannot tell you enough how thankful I am for your support. And once again, thanks to everyone else for your continued support in making this podcast, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I would like to give a special thanks to the amazing artist Michael Levy for allowing me to feature his music on this podcast. He transports you to the ancient world, bringing to life the melodies and using the techniques of the past. A new song will be played every episode. This one is titled, Hymn to Zeus, from his album, Apollo's Liar. If you like what you heard, and are curious to learn more about ancient Greek music, check out his website at ancientliar.com. His albums are available in every major digital music store, including iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify.